This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, Dr. P. Roy Vagelos and Diana T. Vagelos, Estate of Worthington Mayo Smith. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. Long Island ranks among the most vulnerable metro areas in the country when it comes to the risks of climate change. Decades of nitrogen pollution from aging septic systems and fertilizer runoff have only made the situation worse, and the Shinnecock Indian Nation is now helping lead the fight to keep communities above water. The Shinnecock Kelp Farmers, a multi-generational women-led nonprofit, is expanding their kelp hatchery and farm in Southampton to counter climate change and restore the waters they've lived on for thousands of years. The group recently teamed up with the Nature Conservancy, the global conservation organization, on their expansion. Tila Troj is the director of the Shinnecock Kelp Farmers, and Tiffany Waters is global aquaculture manager for the Nature Conservancy, who's helping expand the farm. They join us tonight as part of our Peril and Promise initiative on the human stories of climate change and its solutions. For people who might not be clear or understand, what does kelp have to do with uh, climate change? And more importantly, sewage runoff that could be, uh, I guess, exacerbating the problem. How does kelp help fix the problem? So for those who don't know, kelp is a type of seaweed. It's a natural resource for my tribal nation. It grows in abundance around our territory and has been relied on for a number of different purposes uh, relevant to the climate crisis we're in. Um, sugar kelp particularly has an incredible ability to sequester carbon and also extract excess nitrates from the water, which are causing um, varying levels of oxygen and uh, marine fishery die-offs that we're trying to prevent um, and kind of uh, go against some of the overdevelopment and lack of appropriate septic systems. Um, it's an ancient um, plant that has been in relation with our tribe for many, many years and continues to have modern um, impact on our ecological well-being here. And Tiffany, so how is how do you farm kelp? And I guess, how do you even expand a farm of something? I think when most people think about farming, they, of course, think above ground. How does this work um, <laughs> in the underwater? No, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, a lot of people don't realize actually how much, um, how many greenhouse gases are emitted through food production. So food production globally is 25% of greenhouse gas emissions, 70% of habitat degradation, 80% of water use. And what makes seaweed farming so special is that it doesn't have any of those effects. And so green, so seaweed farming is something that is very low greenhouse gas emissions um, emitting, requires no feed, no fertilizer to grow, 
um, is really growing just off of the nutrients in the water column. Um, so in addition to it not requiring any excess kind of nutrients beyond what's already existing, it's actually actively cleaning up the water that it's feeding from. So it's this incredibly important system and production system that we have. Um, generally, farming is done through long lines, um, but it can also be, depending on where you are in the world, um, also along the bottom. Um, so lots of different ways to actually farm seaweed globally. It's a massive industry in Asia and a newer industry for North America and Europe. That's very interesting because that sounds like uh, a, I guess, green way to deal with uh, some of our waste problems. Is this the only part of the country where kelp farming is being used to help clean the water? Not at all. Um, in fact, so I would say, you know, even though 99% of uh, seaweed farming that is occurring, that's occurring right now commercially is in Asia, um, um, there is a growing wave within North America of folks that are really interested in using seaweed farming for the very purposes that Tila and, and the Shinnecock kelp farmers are, you know, pursuing this um, for the ecosystem services that seaweed farming can provide in addition to the food and the jobs and the products that it can also provide. So some of the areas um, that are where seaweed farming is very popular in the U.S. right now is Maine and Alaska. About 90 percent of the seaweed farms in the U.S. is coming from those two states. But there's a lot of interest in other areas, um, including the West Coast, where we also work with some tribes and First Nations who are interested in seaweed farming as well. Well, going back to uh, the First Nations, of course, Tila, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, the history that uh, your people have with not just farming kelp, but using it. Like, what is it that I guess uh, perhaps people coming here did not realize about the importance of kelp? So when my nation, my nation is a first contact nation, when we encountered the first European colonists, they were cold and they were hungry. And we helped them and we helped them by showing them how to use seaweed to insulate their homes. And we showed them how to use seaweed to fertilize their crops together with a mixture of fish. And so traditionally, um, we use this mixture of seaweed and fish as a biostimulant for corn, beans, and squash, uh, which is also known as the three sisters. Um, but when you add kelp as a soil amendment to, um, you know, flowers, vegetables, gardens, farms, it has this incredible biostimulant property that increases crop production and it's the agricultural foundation of this nation for again thousands of years before Europeans came um, and beyond the practical uses there's um, cosmetic uses there's um, uh, you know there's so many there's so many uses they're looking at textiles um, for my nation we were able to use our seaweed history um, to obtain a political recognition known as federal acknowledgement by showing our reserved treaty rights to seaweed as an abundant natural resource. Um, and it's, also, it's allowed us to grow our industry here in New York, which is behind states like Maine and Connecticut and Alaska um, in terms of regulating seaweed. 
Well, and I want to go a little bit deeper because I'm sure a lot of people would have picked up on the fact that I said that your farm is in Southampton. And that's definitely a location that I would say everybody knows about. So what has been uh, your journey in gaining sovereignty over such popular waters? It's a continuing struggle for sure. Um, the Shinnecock Nation's ancestral territory has been reduced to about 1,000 acres now. Um, our main residential territory, the Shinnecock Neck, is a peninsula. We're surrounded on all sides by water. We're experiencing sea level rise, saltwater intrusion, erosion. We get hit by hurricanes, superstorms. And the interesting thing about our territory where 70% of our population lives 150% under the federal poverty level is that when you go out to the edge of our territory and you look out across the water, you're looking out at $175 million homes on this barrier island called Meadow Lane. It's also known as Billionaire's Lane, and it's homes of the wealthiest people on the planet. And before COVID-19, they would only live there in the summer. But all of that, like these are mansions. They have like 26 bathrooms, and they would just dump waste directly into our water, the Shinnecock Bay, which is the bay that my people have used um, as a food source to survive on since the last ice age. Almost We have almost 13,000 years of recorded history of finding our food source from the bay. And as a result of, again, overdevelopment, overpopulation, after COVID-19, we saw a mass exodus of people from Manhattan and the area Shinnecock Hills, which is the watershed for our bay, increased in population by 40%, which was higher than anywhere else in the region. And our waters just got declared a federal fisheries disaster zone because our shellfish, um, our sea scallops, particularly perished at a rate of over 99.9%. These are our food sources. Um, our people have survived off of shellfish again for, for thousands of years. And now we're experiencing these um, mass marine die-offs because all of this literal waste from some of the richest people in the country is devastating our bay and our ecology. And so our our attempt to um, align our traditional cultural practices and knowledge of kelp and seaweed as being um, this critically important natural resource for us, um, it it it's something that we're we're doing to save our territory and our homeland. But it's not something that we're keeping to ourselves, like we're sharing our knowledge um, with everybody because we are, we do want to lead the way and, and be a model for implementing um, climate strategies. And it's not for a lack of resources, it's really for a lack of will. Um, and we're, we're definitely providing that will and model of how to um, in, enact the change that you need to see. Um, for me, I have a, a one-year-old son and I want him to be able to 
um, fish and clam on Shinnecock Bay, like his ancestors have for just generation after generation. And so um, it's very, it's very important to us to, to protect the land and the water um, and maintain our, our ways of life um, by, again, using our traditional knowledge combined with modern science to find solutions to um, the climate struggles that we're facing due to the excess greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and our reliance on fossil fuel industry. Well, what would you say are at least your long-term uh, goals for this, your long-term hope? And um, Tiffany, I'll throw this one to you because we've got about a minute left. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one, we're just really feeling very fortunate to be partnering with Tila and the Shinnecock Kelp Farmers. Um, when you know opportunities arise and we're invited to collaborate, TNC works in partnership with our Indigenous people and local community partners really to support their visions, learn from their stewardship experiences and amplify their leadership. So not only does that align with our values, but it's shown that indigenous communities often achieve greater conservation results and sustain more biodiversity than even government protected areas. So we're excited to continue to work with Shinnecock, um, kelp farmers and other communities um, as they grow their, you know, their seaweed farm. We're excited to help support them. In a groundbreaking four-part miniseries called Native America, PBS recently presented a look at our nation's first inhabitants, going back 15,000 years, exploring not only their roots and their culture, but also their triumphs and the tragedy that ultimately led to the Trail of Tears. It also included their current endeavors to hold on to and to rediscover their glorious past. Tonight, we go even deeper into one community that was once forcibly separated from its identity by the systemic destruction of their native language by settlers and missionaries. The Mohawk are one of the first nations to inhabit what we now call New York, and they're reclaiming their culture through the power of their native tongue. Jenna Flanagan has the story. Language. It's defined as a method of communication used by a community or country. Sometimes written, but almost always spoken, the commonality bonds individuals within a group and informs its overall culture. As of today, there are roughly 6,500 languages spoken worldwide, with nearly 30% having fewer than 1,000 native speakers, putting them in a very real danger of going extinct. So how does a community ensure that their language lives on in future generations? You start with the children. The language gives us our identity. It teaches us the culture, it teaches us how to be, it teaches us how to be grateful. And without that, who are we? That's Elvira Sargent, an elder member of the Aquasanse Mohawk Nation, which lies at the northern border of New York State. The Mohawk are working hard to not only maintain their language, but ensure it has a future with its language immersion school. It's a completely different learning experience. I mean, over time, we had to evolve. The Aquasanse Freedom School was founded in 1979 after decades of Mohawk children being forcibly removed from their families and native lands to attend boarding schools run by priests, where English was mandatory and the Mohawk language forbidden, effectively putting up a barrier between the people and their culture. Freedom School Level 4 teacher Dohone Alakte, or as he's known by his English name, Levi Hearn, explains the long-term cultural effect. Most of the families in this community um, aren't traditional. 
because of um, what had happened with boarding schools and different types of assimilation with um, like the Jesuits, even in the 1600s. Elvira says she remembers her family members struggling with the separation. My sister actually went to a residential school with my uncle, and they would be there all year, come home if once a year. But what I know with that is that they were not allowed to speak the language. They were punished. My sister doesn't know the culture at all. She still knows the language. She gets stuck. So it has had a lasting impact. Like there's maybe people my age and maybe a little older, um, we didn't have that nurturing nurturing from our parents because they didn't know how to nurture us or show us love. We knew they loved us, but, oh God. <laughs> um, uh, um, but it was hard for them to show us the boarding school separations left a lasting impact on the family. However, Elvira was too young to be taken to boarding school, so she learned to speak Mohawk at home. That's all I heard growing up. But then eventually even that part got lost. And it's that same natural way that guides the Freedom School. We actually start at the age of one, where they can go into our language nest because long time ago, this was their first language. Not all parents can speak the language, so they're not hearing it until they enter school. And the focus is on developing conversational skills over compulsory. I think they really should try to learn it with another speaker, with an elder. I'm afraid with it being in a classroom all the time that it's going to become a classroom language. And I don't want to see that happen. It's just before 8 a.m. at the Aquasanse Freedom School, and the kids are already getting dropped off for the day. The school encompasses a small campus of three buildings, but it's not structured like an American public school. The kids aren't regulated by grade, but rather their Mohawk language ability level. So a child at level two isn't necessarily a second grader, but rather a kid whose conversational skills are still developing. And that child can be any age. My name is Gassana Gohe. Can you say it? Gasunogohe? Yep, Gasunogohe. Clearly, I am a newcomer to the language. But Gasunogohe is not only proficient, she's the level eight language teacher and breaks down Mohawk pronunciation in a way my English only brain can process it. K A H Ga. Uh huh. Her. And this is, comes from the word gasana, which means a name. And this gohe is um, a journey, she who retrieves names. That is so amazing that that's your name given what you teach for a living. <laughs> and that's one of the tenets of the Mohawk way or culture. Every individual has their own name just one that's unique to themselves. Clan mothers of the Longhouse are in charge of picking names, and there are no repeats, juniors or seniors. As she continues explaining the phonetics to me, she shares how modern-day speakers make the ancient language work in present day. 
So our language is descriptive. So the way we've adapted to all these new words um, is just to describe what is going on. So like if you were a camera person, we'd say, oh, he's a filmer. How would you then describe what a journalist does? Like if I were to describe myself in the Mohawk language, how would, what, what, how would I call myself? Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think, maybe Yegaladus. She tells, she tells stories. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Wait, how do I spell that? Yegaladus. I could spell it for you on the board. Oh, please do. This ye is pronoun for her. And this doom is the, the telling of, and this is habitual. So she is a teller, she is a storyteller. I absolutely love that. <laughs> <laughs> Working with longhouse traditions, the Aquasanse Freedom School has its own set of standards and requirements for teachers. They aren't looking for traditional American certificates or degrees, but rather a membership within the nation fluency in the Mohawk culture and language, and above all, a passion for imparting those traditions onto the next generation. Throughout the school, the kids are encouraged to help one another in their language development, and in some classrooms, absolutely no English is spoken at all. So to further my meager Mohawk language skills, I turn to some of the school's most enthusiastic teachers, the seven and eight-year-olds in level two. Sego, what does that mean? Sego, is that how you say it? Bye. Ona. Ona? Ona, and what does Ona mean? Bye. Bye. Oh, so when I leave today, I'm going to say Ona to all of you guys. Gana Lactas, or as she's known by her English name, Tara Skitters, is the school's office manager. She handles admissions, budgeting, hiring, and ensuring the school meets its overall mission. And part of that is creating a familial atmosphere for the kids. So it's a very small percentage of people that come here. The families that want their kids here, a lot of them are traditional, who you know follow the longhouse and the longhouse traditions. I think our overall like values are more the concentration, respect, and taking care of the earth, and being kind to one another. 42 families comprising of 71 kids currently attend the Aquasanse Freedom School and to help immerse them into the culture of the longhouse traditions, each day starts with a community social. Teachers and students gather in one of the larger classrooms and begin with Ahonde Galehuadekwa, which loosely translates means the business before all else. Thanks is given to the creator for everything. It's an important part of the longhouse tradition which focuses on being grateful for the gifts the earth gives and how they aid people in life. They participate in several morning songs or stomps. Songs about hunting or gathering are performed in a ceremonial way. These are open events that anyone can attend, but for the Mohawk, sacred ceremonies are closed to non-nation members. Even though the Freedom School has less than 100 kids enrolled, the Aquasanse Mohawk community is 16,000 strong, and the reservation overlaps the U.S.-Canadian border. So kids who live on the New York side also have friends and family in the Ontario and Quebec provinces. The Freedom School has students from both sides of the border, but according to Level 4 teacher Dohone Alakde, that's our border, not theirs. When they're here, they talk about being on the American or Canadian side because we ourselves don't feel um, as we're a part of the American or Canadian government. We feel that we're a sovereign nation still. 
Tara says one of the biggest worries that parents have is if all this Mohawk immersion will limit their child's ability to learn English and matriculate into one of the nearby public high schools. The reality is English is everywhere. They're going to learn it. I tell parents all the time, like, don't stress about it. If your child is ready to learn English, teach them at home. Don't worry about it. They'll get it. But once they leave here, where are they going to learn the Mohawk language? However, once the Freedom School kids start attending public high schools, community longhouse elder Elvira says it's a bit of a culture shock. We hear back from the students, hey, oh my God, I can't believe the way they talk to their teachers. Or our students, they find them quiet, but it's because they're respectful. And Tara agrees. She says it's not uncommon for her to get calls from former students on break, asking if they can come back and help out for the week. But to truly expand the school's capacity, Tara says they're hoping to build a new structure that can house everybody. Having a new building would really help us all to be in one building so there's no sec nobody's segregated from anybody else. It's good for those younger kids to see the older kids using the language, the older kids doing things because that gives them role models. To pay for all of this, the Aquasansei Freedom School charges a unique tuition either $500 per student or a donated quilt. Tara says each one can bring in a few thousand dollars, generating enough to fund the current school. Families contribute handmade quilts based on the number of children they have enrolled, and some quilts are even donated by professionals. This is a quilt done by the peacemakers of New Paltz, New York. They're always very unique, and people come here just to bid on these because they, they've been doing this for... I want to say 20-something years now. In all, Tara says the mission of the Aquasanse Freedom School is to ensure the survival of the Mohawk culture and language. You know, I want people to know that we're not extinct. You know, people think that um, an Indian is a certain way or that we all are the same, and we're not. There's so many different nations, different clothes, different cultures, different songs, everything is different. And, you know, we have to work really hard to maintain those things. There's so little of us, you know, like compared to other populations, but we're here. We're doing it. We're going to keep doing it. We're not going nowhere. <laughs> we have kids who are learning all this stuff and they're going to carry it on. And that's, we're just doing our thing. Big hug before I go, everybody. For Metro Focus, I'm Jenna Flanagan. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.